The content of CPR Unplugged is designed for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as mental health treatment or medical or mental health advice. Details such as names and locations may have been changed to protect individual privacy. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of CPR Unplugged. I am your friendly neighborhood therapist and host, Stephen Marshall. I'm joined today by a very special guest, Henry Ward. In addition to being a husband and father, Henry is an ultra runner who resides in Chandler, Arizona. Henry was, is in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction and recently celebrated his 14th year of sobriety. Henry is an author of three books, Running Without the Devil, One Too Many Donuts, and One Inch at a Time. Henry, sounds like you're a pretty busy guy. Are you ready for the spotlight? I don't know if I'm ready. This is a lot of pressure, but I think I'll get through it. You know, I always can draw into my superpower, which is uh, recovery from addiction, mostly alcohol, but drugs too. You know, I got through those 22 years of, of really hard times. Uh, I can get through anything. So I'm, I'm ready to answer your question. I'm ready. Yeah. Well, a beautiful perspective too. And, and actually that, that, that's a nice segue because I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your recovery journey and, uh, and what life was like maybe before you were in recovery and, and what it's been like uh, since you uh, started on this on this path 14 years ago. Sure. Uh, growing up in Waltham, Massachusetts, I was surrounded by a bunch of alcoholics and addicts. It was Alcohol was pretty prevalent in my family, my immediate family, my extended family, neighbors. You know, everybody that drank seemed to drink in oblivion. And quite mm -hmm. frankly, I didn't like what it turned people into. People weren't like present. They weren't themselves. They were loud, obnoxious, and I didn't want to be that way. Mm -hmm. So I put I put off my drinking, we'll call it drinking career. My I didn't start till like I was a junior junior in high school, and as soon as I drank, as soon as I drank the first time, it was on. I drank mm -hmm. myself into oblivion. I woke up, I slept over my friend's house. I slept in the porch in a sleeping bag in the rain after doing you know, numerous stupid things like sliding down a railing and falling off and cutting my back and my head open. And I just, I figured like, wow, this was awesome. I was, I was a superstar. I was a rock star almost. And, but I'm never doing this again. But once that smashing headache went away and the cobwebs, cobwebs cleared, it was only a matter of time before I wanted to drink again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was probably the following weekend once we could pool our money together and have somebody buy for us because we're underage but every time i drank it was to oblivion you know as many as i could you know i didn't drink like normal people and in retrospect i i should have i should have seen the signs i should have recognized the signs and people would would tell me like you know cool it you know my my parents once i turned 21 you know telling me i can't i, I can't drink like normal people meanwhile they're they drank in excess too but um yeah, and other people were saying, you know, do you drink every day? Like once I was 21, it was really available and I was drinking almost every day. I'd sit there in my room and isolate and drink. And people would say, do you think you have a problem? And I'd say, no, I'm not bothering anybody. I can stop. I just kind of enjoy, I enjoy partying. I enjoy this lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I tried cutting down, you know, only drinking on the weekends. I started going to the gym and eating healthier. And so three or four days. Went by, I didn't drink. I felt great, was reaping the benefits of the gym. And then I started rewarding myself with alcohol too and drugs. Mm -hmm. So I, after I'd smoke a little weed before I went to the gym. And then after I got out of the gym, I'd go buy a six pack and reward mm -hmm. myself. And so that was obviously counterproductive. 
But um, yeah, then, you know, a few years later, 2002, I decided that I really needed to change. So I went to culinary arts school. I thought that was going to get me sober and keep me sober for that matter. I figured I'd be too busy working full time and going to school full time. I'd need time to study and, you know, whatever, do errands, do laundry and have a have a life. But um, I used alcohol as a crutch to escape and drugs, too. And, uh, you know, I had a tough day at school, tough day at work. Everything was tough because I wasn't sleeping, right? So mm. combine that with getting messed up. I started drinking more hard liquor to accelerate my buzz and smoking a lot more weed. And yeah, mm. I was just a mess. It felt like I was screwed up all the time because I was. And then I graduated, had a nice job, and ended up moving to Arizona, making the decision to move to Arizona. And part of the decision to move was a geographical change would get me sober. And right. then, of course, that... Of course, that didn't work. That worked for about 30 minutes. And, you know, I met, a, I met a girl who's now I can call my wife. Thankfully, she stuck by me through hard times, sickness and health and all that good stuff and bad stuff. Um, but she didn't understand it. She's after the first week. She's like, why are you drinking today? I'm like, oh, I had a, a bad day. I couldn't find work. Why are you drinking today? Oh, it's raining out the next day. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a game on the next day. It's Sunday. I drink all day during Sunday because of a football or, you know, she's like, you drink every day. Don't you think you have a problem? And, you know, and she questioned it. She's, you know, she could have a half a beer and put it down once a week, once a month. Mm -hmm. And, you know, normal, normal people can do that. She saw the other side, what, what, um, not normal people, addicts and alcoholics, uh, do. And, uh, so yeah, we had problems in our marriage because it was all related around alcohol problems with my health, found myself to urgent in urgent care many times. Before I moved out to Arizona, I had three different DUI arrests, two head-on collisions. Like I could have killed somebody. And those are the only times I got caught too, right? I, I drank and drove all the time. If I wanted to go somewhere, somewhere I was definitely going to drink and I was going to drink in excess. And more often than not, I drove myself to and from there. So I'm really lucky I didn't kill anybody or hurt myself. Or uh, So yeah, uh, financial difficulties problems at work everything was you know because of my drinking so uh i uh, went to family counseling with my wife in 2008 and things were getting better i was told that i needed to remain sober in order to be in the relationship which i did and i went to aa everything was going well and i accepted a uh, career opportunity uh like a once in a lifetime opportunity to work at the 2008 beijing olympic games as a chef Wow. which was really neat. And I did not want to go in the beginning because I think deep down inside, I thought I was going to die. Like I had never lived alone. I always lived with my parents or my girlfriend, wife. <laughs> and um, yeah, you know, 7,000 miles away. I was like, that's a little scary. But uh, as soon as I get on the plane, I started drinking. And then a few days later, once I get over there and I, I was missing in action for like three or four days, they couldn't find me. I was just in the, ho in the hotel room where they put us up drinking like I wanted to. And then a couple of days after that, finally got in touch with my wife. She got in touch with me and she's like, you know, she realized I was drinking and she said, have a good time, learn a lot. But when you come home, you have to be sober and sober forever. Otherwise I'm leaving. And so, you know, I, I was out there. I could have been a better employer out there, but I did the best I could. It was kind of a last hurrah. Came back and had, uh, it was a wonderful time to come home and be on American soil, see her eat food here and just get um, get reacclimated back into the United States. 
And after that pink cloud wore off like 30, 40 days, they rewarded us. Ironically, they rewarded us with a dinner in Orlando uh, for, for the Olympic project. And I was gone for four months and I'm like, all right, here's a test. I'm going away. And ironically, my wife is going to Orlando too on a different flight. And she flew out there for business. She never traveled for work. So this is just a really weird coincidence. So I go out there and she's, she wants to get in touch with me. She wants to hook up, you know, it'd be nice to, to hang out in Orlando while we're here. And I kept giving her every excuse in the world. Like, oh, they're doing a, a cocktail party, but don't worry, I'm drinking soda water. Uh, you know, now they're doing something else. And then after like the third phone call, she realized that I was repeating myself, stumbling my words, and quite frankly, pretty wasted. I did the same thing. As soon as I got on the plane, I started drinking again. So she said, don't call me anymore. Don't text me. I'm not going to answer the phone. We'll talk about it when we get home. So that was pissed. I was like super mad at her. Like, I can't believe this. You know, the blame game. It's never my fault. It's never mm -hmm. any addict's fault or alcoholic's fault, right? Mm -hmm. So I start, you know, just texting her back and she's not replying, calling her. I'm getting the voicemail. So I'm getting more and more mad. And I start telling people about my situation and, you know, what good's that going to do? I acted like a fool there. Uh, you know, I had two or three drinks in me in, in my hands at all times. It was open bar. And I don't even remember really the whole night. I don't even remember getting home. It was a miracle I did. I got home. And since I was supposed to be sober, I had no booze. So what I did was I went to the store and stocked up, got a 30-pack, bottle of tequila, bottle of rum, whatever, and just started drinking. I wasn't even really eating. If I did eat, it was like Cheez-Its and saltines. And so for basically three days, two or three days, I, I drank like I wanted to. And I honestly lost the will to live. I wasn't suicidal, but I didn't want to live anymore. Like I figured I screwed my whole life up. I didn't go to work for, for three days, like no call, no show. I had a side job that I just totally blew off too. And, you know, I was just kind of missing an action there. And I was falling down and getting up and falling down. I was super weak because I wasn't eating anything. And... I was cut up. My dog was looking at me like, what's wrong with you? He re she realized I was, I was sick. Right. But I just kept blacking out, not really remembering anything. And then it came to the point where I got desperately low on beer and, and booze. And I was going to have to go to the store, but I couldn't drive there. So I thought about, all right, let's put a plan together. Let's try and get rid of those cold sweats and the shakes. Let's go take a nice shower and then walk to the store. And so that was my plan. I laid my clothes out in the bed went into the bathroom, took a shower, sat in there for a little bit, let the water hit me, sobered up a little bit, opened the door and, and our house was for sale. And there was a realtor there with a nice young couple and their jaws like hit the ground. And so, so did mine when they saw me, they were in awe. And I was too, I wasn't expecting to see anybody there. So they may or may not, the realtor may or may not have called me and said, Hey, we're coming over. I have no idea. But um, just before that, I left this important part out. I remember being in the shower, like crying like a baby, crocodile tears, like, God, please send me some angels. Send send somebody to save me. I'm, I don't want to be like this anymore. I'm scared. I'm worried. I thought I was going to die. I really did. I just kept blacking out. And so then when I opened the door, I realized that those were my angels. Mm. So they they backed away. They left. We didn't sell the house to them. They did not buy our house. <laughs> And I remember going into the kitchen and just emptying the last four or five beers and the bottle of wine, like sk, sk, and just go, 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 go down the drain and just sat there and like, wow, that was really powerful. Just sitting there on the couch, patting the dog. Oh, wow. And that was it, you know, and I started like Googling, you know, ways to get sober, you know, magic pill to, to 
make me sober. Don't yeah. want to drink anymore. You know, just all sorts of really weird things. I don't remember what I actually typed in there, but it was more or less like, you know, I need a quick fix here. I need to save my marriage. And so she came home and I explained to her what happened. She said, yeah, I heard it all before. You're going to quit. You know, you need to go to treatment. And so I'm not ready. I don't feel good, but I am going to go like in like two days when I feel better. And she's like, you go now, you go now or we're, you know, I'm going to, I already got another apartment and I'm going to move out. So she ended up moving out, which ended up, I didn't understand at the time. It ended up being uh, the tough love that I needed. And uh, so two days later, I went to treatment. And the guy at the door is like, can I help you? And I'm like, yeah, uh, I'm here to get some information about treatment. He's like, I've seen you before. You're an alcoholic and addict. I'm like, maybe. I don't know. I've never seen you before. Like just this big, burly, like Harley dude had all these tattoos and everything. And I'm like, I don't know that I've seen you before, but maybe I have a terrible memory from killing so many brain cells. Um, but he's like, what can I ask you a question? What lengths would you go to to drink? and and use drugs. I said, I said, well, yeah, pretty much so. Then what lengths did you go to to get sober? Like, you know, uh, any, did I hear you say any? So yeah. Then what is information going to do for you? I'm like, well, do you have like a pamphlet or brochure? He's like, you came here to get sober. Then like, why won't you sign up? I'm like, oh, this guy's getting commission here. Right. <laughs> and like a stupid salesman. I hate salesmen. <laughs> so so I'm like, what, you know, what is this guy's like my, in my face too? He's like yelling at me. Like, why are you yelling at me? He's like, you said you came in information. What is information going to do for you? What length should you go to to get sober? And he said, yes, then sign up. I say, well, I got to talk to my wife. Your wife may or may not like stick with you, but you're increasing the odds if you get sober forever, right? Yeah. And like, well, is it money? Is money a problem? Yeah, money's a problem. Well, you know, is your life worth a million dollars? Even if this treatment costs a million dollars, is it worth it? Well, yeah. So money should be an issue. Like, well, you got to check the insurance. It's the same thing goes hand in hand with money. Uh, you know, well, I got to, you know, think about like maybe like taking time off of work or we have an intensive, this is an intensive outpatient program. You can still work full time. Like now, why won't you sign up? Why are you being so stubborn? Let me guess. You cut down. You, you stopped drinking. You only drank wine. You only drank on the weekends. You only drank on special occasions. Yeah. Like maybe this guy does know me. <laughs> and so, so like, fine, you know, I'm going to sign up just to shut this guy up and I don't have to show up tomorrow when I'm supposed to. <laughs> I haven't given him a dime. I just basically just, they're going to do the insurance and that's it. And but like, again, like when it just like when I poured the, the drinks, the last of the beer and the hard liquor down the, the drain, when I signed the paper and put the pen down, it was like a huge weight was lifted off my shoulders. You know, mm -hmm. he told he said one other thing that hit home, like you realize you can never drink ever again. And that really just kind of hit home mm -hmm. like every again, one is too many. And, you know, 200 is not enough. It's true. Like I can't if I have one, it's going to lead to 10 to 12 or maybe I can have one today, but. The next time I drink, it's only a matter of time before I'm drinking like I want to. Like that, like I call it like the the good Fred Flintstone and the bad Fred Flintstone, the angel and the devil on the shoulder. The the angel's like, Oh, you can't drink again. The other the bad one's like jabbing you with the pitchfork, just instigating, say, Go ahead, you can have one or two, dum dum, go ahead and eat it, drink it, mm. whatever, smoke it. Um, but I knew I couldn't, I knew I could never drink again because it was only a matter of time before I drank like I wanted to. So that was it. I went to treatment and ended up saving my life. I went there to save my marriage, but I quickly learned that I needed to do it for myself. And then it was forever. 
And another thing I learned rather quickly is I was going to be getting education on myself. I was going to learn how to deal with all these emotions that I suppressed for years. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's from everything from anger to sadness to, uh, to happiness. You know, Mm -hmm. I had to learn how to be, how to be happy, truly happy without alcohol or drugs, without a diluted brain. Yeah. And I just started looking at things differently and they say miracles happen and they do like miracles started to happen left and right. I ended up getting a, a, a job that moved me back to Massachusetts that I doubled my salary, like within really within six, it was within four months, five months of, of, uh, of being sober mm. so back in, in 2009, moved back to, to Massachusetts and you know, it was great to be back there. I went back to a place where I caused a considerable amount of damage to property, to relationships. You know, I had to face my family who didn't know that I went to treatment, who didn't know for years, who didn't know that I was separated from my wife. They knew I had a problem. They didn't ask why I wasn't drinking. Mm. They just, you know, probably assumed that, that uh, you know, I either got treatment or, or I just quit cold turkey. But yeah, I know I continue to work in myself, but Um, before I moved, I was having a hard time with the whole separation thing with my wife because I was spending all the time with her. We had a house that was for sale and then she got an apartment. So we're spending money on both. Like, and Mm. you know, like, why did you go ahead and do this? And, you know, so she, she told me I needed to spend time alone. I said, that's BS because I spent a long time. I spent 34 years of my, my, my life alone. Like, no, you always had booze. Mm. when you're alone you entertain yourself you need to be entertained you need to be with your thoughts with yourself and figure out these emotions and figure out yourself so i spent a lot of time alone but i'd i'd sleep or you know hang out with her uh most days and um i was seeing a therapist and i struggled with that especially in the beginning and he after four or five visits he told me, you're an adrenaline junkie. you got all this energy inside of you. You need to figure out how to fill that void. You used to fill it with alcohol and drugs. Um, looks like you do need attention. We'll deal with that later, but I think you're an adrenaline junkie. So figure out what you can do to get all that energy out. So I went, when I went back to Massachusetts, it just wasn't the same. Like my friends were, some of them were still doing the same old, same old other ones that I used to exercise with, like bike ride or rollerblade or play hockey, nobody did that anymore. Mm-hmm. Everybody was kind of, I don't want to say fat and old, but everybody <laughs> was older and domesticated and out of shape. And um, yeah, no, I just, I found a few friends that that didn't drink. Like I used to only hang around people that did things that I did, you know, drank in excess, smoked a lot of weed and like that party lifestyle. I ended up finding a bunch of new friends and I would go out to eat with them. And that's about it. They didn't really drink much or a couple of them had gotten sober. And then I started becoming kind of a squirrely mess. I wasn't going to AA. I wasn't going to any meetings. And, you know, honestly, I wasn't really working on myself like I used to. I guess I became complacent. And uh, after the marathon bombing, of the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013, I tried running a few times. I'm like, I'm going to unite with these runners and we're going to fight this local terrorism. And mm. I tried running a few times and I hated it. I was like, out of, out of wind, <laughs> but I did become a, uh, in the process in the la- in 2012, I became like a distance walker. Mm-hmm. So I would walk with my son. My son was born. I would walk with him, walk with a dog. And I did as much as 12 miles, which was a pretty far way to, to walk. Yeah. And I always had this mentality, like, if I could run, I can go further <laughs> and I can get there faster. <laughs> so, yes. So I tried it a few times and I hated it. 
I used to make fun of the people that are running in the rain, running in the snow. Like these guys are addicts. These guys have to <laughs> run every day. These guys and girls, like they get issues. But you know, meanwhile, look in the mirror. And uh, so we're going to visit a friend in 2000, May of 2013. We're going to go visit a friend in Corning, New York, and he worked at at Corning Glassware. And they had a glass fest, glass fest weekend, and there was a glass fest 8K. So they had street performers, you know, clowns, magicians, uh, puppet show, close the street down, street vendors, glass blowing, exposition, and all sorts of stuff. And I noticed there was a glass fest 8K. And so I mentioned to my friend who had taken up running the year before and did the Disney half and the, and the wine glass half marathon, if he was running this 8K, and he said, uh, like, I will if you do. Said, so, you know what? Sign me up. I need something to do, something to strive for. You know, I'm thinking this is what my therapist told me I need. I need to fill this void. I'll do it. And so I trained twice. I pushed my son Sebastian in his in his stroller, and um, you know, I didn't mind it. I didn't mind it so much. It was it was hard, but I got through a four mile run. You know, a little bit of walking, and then you know, a two and a half mile run. It was time to rest and recover and get ready for this 8K. And I go first. I got to try to figure out how far an 8K is. So yeah, five five point three miles. So I was ready. I show up at the start line, got my number pinned on me. I got the stroller, and it was unseasonably cold. It was like forty degrees, like forty mile headwinds. And we start off, and I start off too strong. And all of a sudden, within thirty seconds, I'm hating life. I hate this. I don't want to do this. I want to quit. And literally, like every time that someone passed me, I was like going to elbow them or. <laughs> I joked that I, I joked that I, I wish I brought some marbles or something. Cause I just throw them down on the ground and yeah, I'm like, it's too, I was super disappointed. Like it's too bad. Cause I thought it was really going to like this running thing. And then I realized that I was, I was at the halfway point, like, well, might as well just keep going. I don't know where I'm going anyways. My, might as well follow these other idiots. And then I realized that I was going to finish. And when I did finish, I saw the finish line, this is a big inflatable finish line. They made us go all the way around the track to finish. So I started sprinting that all of a sudden I almost got put to a screeching halt. But when I finished, I got, it was like, I won a gold medal in the Olympics. I got a glass medallion made in Corning at the, at the plant there, a banana and a water and like some gummies. And it was like one of the greatest days of my life, like, cause I didn't quit. And I, I was able yeah. to, to think along the way, like, you know, I've been through worse, all those sleep, you know, those tough days, tough nights in addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, all the problems that I caused and stuff, all the, all this, just all the madness, everything about that. I got through that. I can get through this. And, and that was enough, even though it was 5.3 miles to get me through. It seemed like, you know, 5.3 days at the time, but I got through it. And then that led to me looking to see if there was any races at back home. And sure enough, there was a, there's a, like a 5k series. I show up for that the following weekend after my wife, mentioned that I might want to go get medically cleared to do stuff. I, sh- <laughs> I, I showed up and, and I found a couple people from high school and I used to hate seeing those people because they want to know your whole story. You married, you know, what are you doing for work? And man, I'm just a screw up. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, they're like, I found running, like I quit, I quit drinking like seven years ago and I found running, I lost all this weight and it's great. And I found another person, the same thing. There's a couple different people that like had gotten sober and used running as part of their recovery. And so I shared my story with them. So I had a whole new group of friends. And so I trained with them and they were running the Boston Marathon because they got rerouted the year before because of the bombing. So I did all the long runs with them and got to know them. And we talked recovery. It was almost like an AA meeting on on foot. It was really cool. 
And then I had signed up for the Pittsburgh marathon with, within my first year of running and did that and realized I had this endurance gene. And then a year later I found out, so I was hooked on marathon distance. I was obsessed. I had a new addiction with, with running and then marathon distance. And then I found out about ultra running and like, why would anybody want to do that? Like this guy, this addict, nothing in moderation, right? More, more, more. And it wasn't an ego thing, really. It was like, I just want more. I want the ultra marathon is anything more than a traditional 26.2 miles of a marathon. I wanted to know what it felt like to push myself to get through a 50K or a 50 miler or build up to a 100 miler. So I did a, I signed up for a, it was a fit and being like a 54 miler. And it was like, you know, one of that, there was I at the time, it was the hardest thing I ever did, except get, re, get, uh, get sober. And then I realized that it wasn't afterwards. That wasn't that bad. It went from, I'm never doing that again to the same mentality, just like drinking and never, never doing that again. to I could do that again. <laughs> and so I found another 50 miler and then I signed up for my first hundred miler, which is called the Havelina hundred here in McDowell mountain range, McDowell regional park in Fountain Hills, Arizona. So we came out from Boston. And then when I came out here, and came back to the place that I got sober and had a lot of history here. A seed was replanted or, you know, put a little bit of water on that plant and it grew. And we decided to eventually move back here. And um, I did, I started doing like fundraising events on my own and ended up doing what's, I did a 12 hour treadmill event in my friend's gym in Corning, New York. Kind of went back when my running started and raised money for addiction there. And then I did what's called the Boston Marathon Quad. So I start at the finish line and then go to the start line, 26.2 mile run, 26.2 miles to the start line, turn around, go to the finish line, marathon number two, go to the start line for marathon, marathon number three and go to the finish line of the marathon course for 105 miles. So I did that and then did a 24 hour track run. That was kind of a going away thing right before we moved to Arizona from Boston and all of which were fundraisers for prediction and then i moved out here and did a 24-hour run in the desert and then i continued with the boston marathon quad thing so i've done five of those and this april will be number number six and i've done four mesa marathon quads i've done two satan sidewalks i'm doing another one in february which is a 66.6 hour treadmill event mm. people are like that's crazy running a treadmill for 66.6 hours like well i you can take breaks. You can do as much as you want or as little as you want. But like people say like, I can't run more than 20 minutes on the treadmill or more than two miles. Like you can do anything you want to do. You just have to get in that headspace. Like it teaches running in general, teaches you to stay in the moment. Like if you can't stay in the moment on a treadmill, you're going to get eaten alive. If you say this sucks. I hate it. I'm bored. I don't want to do this anymore. You're going to hop off the thing and, and, and not really, you know, enjoy yourself. But if you just commit to doing it and staying in the moment, like people say, like, how are you going to do like later on in the day? How are you going to do on day two? I don't know. But right now I feel good. I'm going to keep going. So, mm. you know, it, it really teaches you to be present. And the idea behind it, I, I love being outside. Like I hate being on the treadmill. I was forced myself to do something that I want to do. So I can apply that to different things like washing the dishes or picking up dog crap in the backyard, whatever it is. You know, those those tasks uh, become, you know, pr pretty easy if, if uh, you just say, yeah. Suck it up, buttercup. Just go do it. You know, and the treadmill thing, it is boring. But when I do these events, I have other people that will bring me food or run a little bit with me. You know, it kind of helps pass the time. And 
kind of creates a sense of community and a lot of people have confided to me about their own addictions or their loved ones addictions and stuff and shared their stories or asked questions and um, yeah, I've done a couple of those in this past March. I finished a 250 mile endurance race called Cocodota 250, which is uh, is a trail race from Prescott, Arizona, and finished in in Flagstaff with 40,000 feet of elevation gain. And people say that's crazy too. Like, why would you do that? Why would you want to do that? Like, honestly, I'm lucky to be able to do what I can. Like, you know, as sappy as it sounds, like every day is a gift to wake up and see the sunrise, to be able to breathe, to be able to run, to be able to run at the level I do is like a huge, huge bonus. So, you know, I'll do it as life's too short, another cliche, but it really is. I'll just keep doing things as long as I can, as long as my body holds up, you know, and just, you know, there's, there's recovery built into to running too and endurance sports. Like if you go, 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 you're going to break down. I always have recovery built in for that too, you know, mental and physical and spiritual. Mm. Yeah. So that's, so, I mean, it's, it's just kind of remarkable. Just uh, the, the running in general, the 5.3 miles to 250 miles. And you I mean, that's pretty somewhere. impressive. Yeah. Yeah. You do have to start somewhere, but that's pretty impressive. And then the elevation gain Thank you. must've been crazy. So that's a remarkable accomplishment. And um, I mean, your, your story in general, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in awe by it. It's a, uh, you know, as a therapist, one of the things you do is you, you know, kind of write down little key phrases or notes. And so I just have the habit of doing it. And I, I felt like I was filling up pages here because there's so much that I wanted to tap into with you. And, you know, I guess maybe it would be appropriate to kind of start here. You, you had, you had said that your, your life in sobriety, need, you, you needed to do it for yourself. Um, and initially you thought you were going into recovery because you, you know, wanted to repair the relationship with your wife, but you said you need to do it for yourself. I'm wondering if you could explain, because you'll hear that a lot. It doesn't matter. So let's see how I can explain it. If I can't, if I can't heal myself, if I can't work on myself. If I can't get better, if I can't get healthy, if I can't get sober, I can't take care of a job. It's going to just be the same thing over and over again. Cause that was the history. If I can't take care of, if I can't take care, take care of myself, I can't take care of a relationship, a wife, a child, mm. you know, properly. I needed to take care of myself first. Mm. You know, all those other things. Like if I didn't take care of myself, the marriage would have never happened. My wife had already separated and she would have left. She would have moved on. She got, she got sick too. She was strong enough. She was seeing a therapist. She was strong enough to make that decision. I, didn't think she was, you know, I was like, ah, she's bluffing, you know, but no, she was serious. And, you know, and if, if, you know, honestly, if, uh, if she left me, then my son, my 10 year old son, obviously wouldn't have been possible. Right. You know, you, you had mentioned that you, when you started drinking as a junior, that you immediately started drinking to oblivion. And I, I would imagine that some of your triggers may have changed over time, but did, did you, as you were sort of figuring this out for yourself in recovery, did you identify what those triggers were? Um, I know the adrenaline junkie was something that you and your therapist had come to is that you were sort of seeking thrills. Was there, was, was there something else going on that was leading you to want to, to, to drink or use at the level you were? I felt alone a lot. Like, I, I don't know, I needed attention. That was part of it. And I felt like I couldn't be myself. Like I went from a shy little kid Mm-hmm. I was I was tiny growing up. Now I'm six foot two, but mm-hmm. I was I was always like the smallest kid. I get bullied, and so I'd get I'd get attention that way. But 
you know, I was, I felt shy. Like I would never speak up in class. I would never, you know, within my little network of friends, I was a, you know, a chatterbox or whatever, but in general, like I would never speak up in class or the teacher called me. I'd be like, blah, 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 blah. I couldn't, couldn't even talk. I'd be sweating. And yeah, no, it kind of gave me like, it kind of gave me a voice. And then when I started drinking, you know, like I felt like I could be myself. Mm. I felt like strong. I felt like I could, you know, I could kick Goliath's ass. I could talk to any woman, you know, I could go fight the rock, fight the rock or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just had beer muscles and beer goggles. I felt like I felt alive. I felt like I could be myself. I could say anything. I could do anything. Yeah. It's sort of, it's like this, uh, it's a very innate human desire. We have a need for a sense of love and connection. And if you, you know, had experienced bullying or you felt alone early in childhood, then, you know, that, substance gave the confidence to to you felt like be yourself but it seems like it it really wasn't you though and 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 you know you had mentioned that you had made these new friendships through running I'm wondering if you could share with us like what those friendships meant for you as you know being sober as opposed to like when you had your beer muscles and beer goggles and you were you, you making friends you know making quotes with my fingers but it, what, what was the difference to that it was huge. Like I felt like I was part of community. Finally, you know, mm. I felt like I had like some real friends. Like when you go to AA, you go to AA meeting, you find there's people just like you, right? Mm. So to 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 be accepted with open arms to a community that I caused a lot of damage to in general, like mm. they didn't judge. Like they, some of them knew my past. They knew me from being in the bars and my reputation and stuff. Mm-hmm. For them to accept me back, like no judgment, and just kind of be with one of them and you know, and, and come to the next run, come to the next race. Hey, you doing this? Hey, you doing that? That was, that was huge. Mm. That was huge. And and I had like an outlet, like I could, I could talk to these people, you know, on the run about anything, any of my struggles, or we talk about, you know, just different things within their addiction. And yeah, I mean, we could, by the end of a long run, we could, we could solve all the problems in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course. You know, you could, you can figure it all out. Strength in numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, one of the other things I, I sort of noted when you were, when you were sharing about your journey on, uh, on the road running, you, you said that you would had the ability to stay in almost like this meditative state in the moment. And part of that was grateful for your body and the ability to, to go the distances you could. And, and also um, grateful for the people that you were with. And so a lot of kind of gratitude is built into the, the running oh, journey. Totally. You know, if I didn't get sober, then the running wouldn't be, the running wouldn't be possible either. Um, mm-hmm. And then to find people that were in both communities at once, I didn't really see that coming. And that was really, really neat. What did you think before, before, like before, um, like you said, you found people in both communities. Is it that you felt like you were going to be alone forever or that no one would really understand, you know, your, your perspective on things? What, what was that? Uh, well, I didn't know. I didn't know. Like I just walked into it as like this 43 year old man that started this running career and I was just going to be kind of an outsider that's going to go run this race in, in like my hometown. And I may or may not know anybody there. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, I felt like I was just going to be this guy that shows up and then pushes himself. And I really didn't, I really didn't know what to expect. I didn't expect to see people I knew there. Mm-hmm. And I didn't expect to see people that, uh, that were all, that were sober, that wanted to be my friend and the people that would exchange numbers with me, mm-hmm. letting me and at me asking. And 
you know, part of me was like a little skeptical, like, I don't know, is this like a cult or something? <laughs> well, yeah, it does take an act of courage, though, to put yourself out there. And um, it sounds like you were able to to overcome whatever, whatever hesitations. Yeah. And I, I did need to be careful because it did become kind of an addiction, right? You know, switching mm. one addiction to the other. My, my wife would call me out. Like I'd say, Hey, do you think Randy's asking me if we can go run a 5k and like whatever, wherever it was, uh, you know, Medfield, Massachusetts on Saturday morning. She's like, you did a race last weekend. You did one the weekend before. Are you going to run every weekend? No, you're not doing it. You know, it takes up the whole morning. You, you go there early, you do the race, you stay afterwards, you know, mm. to be part of the community. And then you come back and you're junk. You know, after a 5K, I'd be trashed. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I said, well, just one more. Like, well, fine. If you bring Sebastian, if you push Sebastian. So, yeah. Okay. But I always found myself like, using my conniving skills that I learned in addiction <laughs> to, to try to get my way. But then, you know, she's, you know, when is enough enough? She's kind of the voice and reason. Like when all our vacations became like runcations. Yeah. So we haven't, we haven't gone to Mexico to see my family. We haven't gone here to do this. We haven't done all. Everything's revolves around your running. So she keeps me in check and I do a lot less racing. And um, the training that I do now is done most of the time like when they're sleeping or not not around usually when they're not sleeping i'll get up at three or four in the morning to go out and get a long run in or go to track or go to the gym or something how do you um how did you find that balance I and mean, obviously your wife played an integral role there you know sort of holding you accountable to other responsibilities you had but were, was there another way that you helped to find balance in that no like just i always want family to be first anyways mm -hmm. You know, and I didn't, I didn't realize, like, I, I never wanted to, yeah, I worked Monday through Friday. So, you know, the weekend was family time. And once it started to become like, hey, you know, we're only getting one, one family day, really Sunday, and, you mm -hmm. know, part of Saturday night, then, you know, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I, I missed that. I want to spend time with my family. That's the, that's why I'm here. That's why we're here. The most important thing in my world, in my life, you know, I, I need to do the training, to in order to do well and i enjoy the benefits the mental physical and spiritual benefits of running it really helps me with my recovery so my wife understands the benefits and how it's changed me mm -hmm. so there's definitely there's definitely a delicate balance she lets me do it i just can't take advantage of uh, and do it too much right it'll be, it'll be taken away from family time yeah. Well, it sounds like you have a proper order to your value set now where your sobriety kind of sits above all of it. And then, you know, very close is your family and then, you know, your running community that you found. And, and when you put that in it, its proper order, then life sounds pretty good. Yeah. You know, you kind of, when, it, when everything's going well, you're in this nice flow state, you know, and I continue to work on myself. And if I do get sloppy or I do get complacent, it, it definitely shows and she'll call me out. Mm -hmm. saying you need to go for a walk you need to go for a ride or, you know you need to check yourself you haven't been to a meeting in a while or you know you're not putting she'll call me just flat out and say you're not putting the work in mm. like i said there's there's no mat there's no magic pill for anything for recovery it's it's forever it's not like oh i graduated from treatment program from an intensive outpatient now i'm all better it's, it's not like that it's not like you uh surgically paired an ankle and it's all better it's it's continuous work and you know, it definitely shows when I'm not putting in the work mm -hmm. and I can recognize, I recognize the signs myself. I'm just not feeling well and can't, sometimes I can't pinpoint it to one particular incident, but 
long story short, it's it's usually uh, not not being connected with God and not putting the work in. Yeah, awesome. You you wrote a couple books. Could you tell us a little bit? You wrote three books, and I think I saw that one is a children's book, right? Yes, and uh, I tell people if I can write a book, anybody can. But um, <laughs> no, I give myself a lot of credit because I I am pretty hyperactive and I have a tough time sitting still. So a uh, combination of that and just being busy moving from Boston to Arizona, busy with work and life and everything else. I had started the book in 2017 mm-hmm. and then tried to write. And then COVID ended up giving me the time to to do many things, including that. So I got a high performance coach and I sat down and wrote Running Without the Devil, my first book, which is a story about my early signs of addiction and my active addiction years, my rock bottom my treatment and aftercare, how I found running and how running helps me. So it's more or less, uh, you know, a 360 something page version of what we discussed today. Yeah. Yeah. And many other things. Did you enjoy the writing process? Was it cathartic or? I did. I did. Yeah. So like I, it brought back a few memories and, you know, it was therapeutical. It wasn't that hard. The hard part was getting everything sounds good in my brain, getting it out, translating onto paper into the computer was the hard part. Mm-hmm. So I ended up getting it professionally edited and, but it wasn't, I don't want to say it wasn't hard. I did like an outline. He basically had like a Google doc with bullet points. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say like, okay, like early signs of addiction, Boston marathon quad separation from wife, da, 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 all these different bullet points that I wanted to write either chapters or expand upon, put them in chronological order. And then when I had time, I just mind dumped and just filled in those mm-hmm. paragraphs and those chapters yeah. And so I finished that. And then I just kind of went with momentum. I wanted to write a children's book. So I wrote a children's book called One Too Many Donuts. And it's a story about Sebastian. I mean, Sal. So I use my <laughs> son as, as the character. And we character, we um, we use like an app and, and just made like uh, characters of the different things characterized like donuts and children and adults and, and everything that was in the book. And it's about different types of addiction, addiction to, to food, to donuts, to, to TV, to uh, cell phones, to apps, mm-hmm. to video games and stuff and kind of different ways you can combat it, such as uh, physical, physical fitness, um, therapy, running. And so I have a bunch of pictures of him um, doing MMA, running at the track with me, me running, a couple other friends running. I just had fun with it. We ate, we had about a couple dozen donuts, styled them up, took pictures, and of course, ate the donuts. Nothing went to waste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I did that the Cocodona two hundred fifty mile race. Mm-hmm. And since we did, I did a hundred miles of the course in twenty twenty to see to kind of preview the course to see if I, that was something that I wanted to do, along with other friends that were thinking the same thing. So we had a life changing experience, a bonding experience with six other runners. I did, and and then. Um, decided to do it in 2021 and I ended up not being able to sleep for three days and dropping at mile 127. And then I registered wow. for 2022. And it's kind of the, I, I wanted to go back to to see what it felt like to finish the thing. I did had much better training as the story goes and worked on the things that hindered me, such as lack of sleep. I practiced sleeping with a sleep mask, earplugs, and uh, less caffeine, less sugar, that type of stuff. Got more mm-hmm. climbing in, and I joke with people. I kick more rocks. I toughen my feet up. <laughs> and anyways, as as I was as I was on mile, let's say it was like somewhere around two forty, I was about to finish. I was about to go over Mount Eldon in Flagstaff, 
and I got a text message from my friend David Rendell, and he's a he's an author and a keynote speaker. He's spoken around the world, mm-hmm. and so I decided to call him, and he said, "You're doing really well. I'm really proud. Even followed you around on the tracker." And and I said, "Thanks a lot." And he, I told him, you know, it's funny because like from one aid station to the next, it's called one inch at a time. Like literally, you know, if you just mm-hmm. keep moving forward, you'll eventually get to where you're going. And that was the case for that for sure. But each aid station was six miles, 10, 12, 14, 16 miles apart, whatever. And I said, each from one aid station to the next, it's like a chapter. It's like a story and its own personality. It's like, well, there you go. Like there I go. What? There you go. You just said each story is each, each segment, each from aid station to aid station is like a chapter. Now you got to write a book. I'm like, Mm. Oh, you suck, man. <laughs> I was thinking about writing. I was thinking about writing a blog, maybe. But you know, okay. Yeah, you yeah. hold me accountable for he, that. He's gonna drop that on you on mile two forty. <laughs> yeah. So, like, all right, I committed to it. So when I I came back, I recovered, and uh, I decided to just do the same thing. Just take all the bullet points and and then elaborate on look back at pictures so I could kind of jogged the memory sometimes and, mm-hmm. and, you know, stuff that had come back to me. And I had a crew with me that I relied on to keep me moving forward too. And I, I picked their brains, like, is there anything I'm missing or anything you sh- I should add? Any, you know, what were your highlights and so on and so forth. So yeah, I ended up writing the book. It didn't really take that long. And then I had my wife and my friend edit it. I didn't pay anybody to edit this one, but yeah, that came out this year. And uh, yeah, did, did a little launch in October. That's fantastic. I'm I'm curious, you know, your your wife and you obviously have a, a beautiful love story, and there's something there that's um, incredibly special. She she really she sounds like an incredible person. But what would you tell the family member of someone who's battling addiction? Um, you know, sometimes we have listeners who are listening to themselves, and sometimes we have family. And I, you know, you you guys seem like you have a great relationship, and and she holds you accountable, and you likely do the same for her. And and what are, what what would you tell someone who has a family member that's that's going through what you went through? I mean, like for the family member, for the spouse that doesn't drink mm-hmm. or use, they need to get help too. She went to Al-Anon, and she worked mm-hmm. on herself, and she she has you know I screwed her up. She still has to continuously work on herself too yeah i mean it's that they can be more worse off because she enabled me for years like mm. let's we'll go on vacation to, to see if we can get you to feel better we'll buy new curtains new comforter mm. new this new that you know she she kept telling me i need to cut down i need to do this i need to do that i need to eat healthier i need to do that but she couldn't fix me i needed to i need to help myself and that's hard for somebody else to understand right um right. Yeah. So I would tell them to get help work on themselves, mm-hmm. you know, not, not to be selfish, but, you know, I know people that I've tried to help, you know, we're supposed to, as re- people in recovery are supposed to help others, but if people don't want help and they're not a hundred percent ready, mm-hmm. you can't force them to go to treatment. You can't drop them off at the door and be like, here, go get better. They need to want to do it for themselves. And if they're not ready, they're going to pencil whip it. They're just going to BS their way through the whole program. And it's going to be only a matter of time before they go back out again. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wow. Yeah. And what, and, and, you know, sort of a follow up to that, um, you know, what advice would you give someone who's either in the early stages of recovery or maybe they're, you know, we, we use the term the pre contemplative stage there. They're sort of considering Half in the door. Yeah. 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 I mean, again, you have to, you have to be ready, but it ended up like, it ended up saving my life. 
Mm. Like if you apply yourself and you're hundred percent ready, it'll save your life. And the miracles do happen like every day, mm-hmm. every day. And I couldn't do any of the stuff that I did if I was still drinking, like nothing would be possible. Yeah. I mean, dive right in hundred percent, give it hundred percent and you'll start seeing the, the miracles happen. I guarantee. Yeah, don't, really... don't be half, don't be half in the door, half, half in, half the door half out you, know, you get half ass results well yeah that goes back to the story you told about that the gentleman you met and um he, he had uh he had sort of continued to push you to get into treatment and 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 then when you did when you signed the paper you said that weight had been lifted from you and it's like is that was that because you were all in at that point you felt i was all in yeah that was me giving up giving mm-hmm. everything to god just completely understanding that i can never drink again that i was powerless over alcohol and drugs you know, it took control of all aspects of my life. Like, as they say, my life was unmanageable. It was mm-hmm. like all that madness went away. Like I used to, if I, if I was at work or wherever I was, I'd be thinking every day, like how much money did I have to buy with beer? How much time did I have before my wife get home? What could I get away with today? Mm. And if it was only one or two beers the next day or the next day after that, I would make up for lost time. So those days I'd be thinking like, all right, I'm going to go to the liquor store. I'm going to get a six pack and I'm going to get a couple fill of beers and I'll get a couple like nips of tequila to accelerate my buzz. And then I'll go home and take a nap. I'll brush my teeth. I'll take a shower and I'll go pick her up. And that's going to be the plan. So I'd start thinking of all this madness. And then once I quit, like, like one of the weirdest things for me is like I had all this headspace, like a, all these brain cells, like I opened up a whole new area of my brain. Like I'm not thinking about that stuff. All that madness went away, which was crazy. Right. Um, yeah. You start thinking clearly, having clarity. And that was pretty amazing for me. Right. Well, I, you know, I think that's a, a, I think that's a, um, a good place to kind of wrap things and, and, you know, appreciate you going all in with us here, sharing your story as being as open as you, as you were and, and the, the, the highs and the lows, you know, so Henry really from the bottom of my heart, thank you for stepping in this, into the spotlight. I think your story is going to inspire people and, and hopefully help some, some folks as well. Thank you Steve, for having me. Yeah. And then to our listeners out there in listener world, thank you for tuning in. Got questions or ideas for the podcast, or perhaps you have your own story to share. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call 602-281-7795. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcast. CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc., The intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara LaMontagne, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support.